The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Natasha Froze and I'm joined by Katie Balls and Isabel Hardman. The first migrants have arrived in Dorset for the first of the government's migrant barges. This one, Bibby Stockholm, is set to house up to 500 migrants and it's a bid to cut down the costs of six million a day that the government is currently spending on hotels. Katie, do you think this will work? Well, it depends what you're trying to achieve. Ultimately, it's about having more places where you can hold migrants um, when they arrive, while they have their applications looked over. And it's about trying to cut down the use of hotels, which we know is both expensive, also something which leads to a big backlash, both amongst uh, MPs, when it's hotels in their seats, but also voters. And it is aimed at tackling that. And as you say, the argument is that the barge uh, will be lower cost to British taxpayers than largely using hotels. All these things cost a lot of money to get up and going in the first place. But it's faced several problems. There's been delays. There's been, uh, you know, lots of um, claims that this there's risks to this barge when it comes to fire and others. Um, the MP in the seat where the barge is is less delighted, and that tends to be a theme um, because I plan to roll out a few more. Um, it is just one small part of the government's plans on stopping the boats, and therefore this might ease some of the hotel problems. Um, I think it will um, raise some new ones too, but. Ultimately, what's much more important in terms of Rishi Sunak's general goal of trying to reduce um, uh, the number seeking asylum in the UK is what's happening with the Rwanda scheme. The illegal migration bill has now become law, but where are they going to put these people when uh, they have their claims gone? That's still in the courts. You have today claims that Ascension Island may be back. Now, that's a bit retro for listeners on this podcast. Pretty Patel was considering that back in the day. That's the, I think, no longer active volcanic island, but also a, a small island that uh, I think is quite black in terms of its rock and doesn't have a hospital on it. So there's lots of questions about how workable that one is. And then you had quite an interesting lobby today where it effectively feels as though Downing Street are largely trying to say that that's not an active option by not completely killing it. But it does at least raise a prospect, for which is I would be very surprised if Ascension Island suddenly becomes a workable option. But it does just raise the prospect of what is the plan B if plan A, which is Rwanda doesn't work. Plan A is supposed to be get the Rwanda scheme off going. That's supposed to go to the Supreme Court um, in the autumn and be yet to be completely confirmed. And then at that point, sign up more countries um, to take them. And then you have more deterrent effect there's more places to send them if you can't get that up and going where do you go next Isabel obviously um today we had the protesters outside some saying welcome migrants welcome and then there were other protesters saying no barge here in Dorset what were your first impressions of how it rolled out today yeah so it's, it's interesting and as Katie says it really it depends what you're looking for as a measure of success ministers are saying that this is a sign of success because they've got people on this barge uh i think it's 50 initially came on 
uh, its initial capacity was for 220 and they've uh, more than doubled that to 500 by um, putting bunk beds in some of the cabins and so on. And that's something that sparked a lot of worries about health and safety, particularly fire safety. The fire brigades union have, have been protesting um, about that. But in terms of what a wider success measure would be, is it saving money? You know, is the Rwanda policy, is the possible Ascension Island policy about saving money? Uh, is it actually about um, a deterrent to criminal gangs? Or is it very simply about saying to voters, we are doing something, uh, whether or not that stops the boats? Actually, ministers are, are doing something and the lefty lawyers and criminal gangs and so on are still finding ways around that something. Um, and that's not ministers fault. I think there's, you know, that the, there's lots of different messages that, that ministers are trying to send out there. Uh, Patrick Flynn's got a really interesting piece on Coffee House today about the number of times that Ascension Island has come up as a possible policy. Um, and also, I think it's really interesting that he talks about the possible reaction of particularly uh, the House of Lords uh, to these kinds of policies. Um, the Times story today suggests that along with Ascension Island, ministers also thought about the Falkland Islands, which they then deemed to be too politically sensitive, um, and also Alderney and the Channel Islands. Now, I've just come back from the Channel Islands from my um, uh, annual holiday, and Alderney is a fascinating place because it actually had a concentration camp on it in uh, the Second World War. And the reason I mention that is Patrick predicts that Apia would start to talk about concentration camps quite soon, as, as soon as this policy is in action, though. I think Alderney would probably uh, allow critics to walk into that comparison quite easily because they have the government has just set up a public inquiry into what actually happened during the Second World War on that island. So there are... Um, a lot of political sensitivities with some of these places that were considered. Um, but as Patrick argues, part of that part of the plan is to make it politically sensitive because voters are so angry about it that actually if you have people kicking off from the left about this and making comparisons that, that are, you know, to, to, to ministers' minds, ludicrous, uh, all the better because it becomes a talking point and it shows to the electorate that ministers are on their side. Now, Katie, when it comes to honours lists, we've just stopped talking about Boris Johnson's honours list, but actually now there's Liz Truss's to row over. Um, how is this debate different to Boris Johnson's? I think it's different because with Boris Johnson, there was definitely dread as the list was going through the motions um, because it was seen as to be very long and damaging and it got whittled down by a fair bit by the time it's all light of day. But the real row was ultimately about the vetting process. Um, the fact that we had two of the three by-elections last month down to uh, a row about peerages, Boris Johnson, Nigel Adams, and then Nadine Dorish yet to officially resign. Some trying to work out if they can make the decision for her. But that was all about the fact that sitting MPs do not pass the vetting uh, process because you cannot be a member of the House of Commons and the House of Lords, and then who they blamed for this not being explained to them. Uh, Rishi Sunak was uh, the figure and other sinister forces around him, some of whom may have once sat around this table. And then also... Um, uh, you know, did Boris Johnson fail by not telling them and what could be done? With this resignation on his list, um, the 
conversation is much more about who would want to be on it in the first place. Um, now, of course, Liz Truss premiership, 49 days. Um, I think people say, you know, if it is 14 appointees, then that's one honour for every four days of her premiership. Um, but uh, one of the stories say in the Times, uh, for example, is that two members of her staff rejected uh, the honours list. Now, something that Steerpike uh, writes about today is a WhatsApp group, um, which I think around the time Liz Truss was leaving, something the Spectator, I think, was the first document. Um, you know, that the conversation her aides and Liz Truss were having just as she was, you know, about to leave Downing Street for the fir- for the last time, um, was about honours, whether she should do an honours list in the first place. Half her t- her team thought it was a really bad idea. Um, you had Mark Philbrook, then the chief of staff, he thought it was a good idea. And um, as Steerpack understands it, on this WhatsApp group, Mark Philbrook wrote saying, you know. I'm pushing for honours for all of you. And two members of staff um, replied quite quickly, which was, you know, thanks, but no thanks. There's also some others I've spoken to who take the view that, um, you know, it's more hassle than it's worth probably to be on Liz Truss's honours list. Um, And I think there's some who haven't actively said they don't want one, but they are waiting to see how things shake out, which to me suggests they're not going to go around saying they want a particular honour but that they're, they're not fighting it if they do somehow just end up you know with a knighthood damehood cbe obe i think it's interesting in a way if you don't think that you deserve one for your time working for liz trust why would you take an honour i think some think that perhaps it's just worth the brief row and the scandal because in 15 years time people might just see the honour and not be talking about the liz trust row um but obviously some others think it ended so disastrously it's not something which is arguable um that people in the team should be getting them and isabel the names haven't been announced yet exactly but who are the sorts of names we should be looking out for yeah so i mean it's it's difficult isn't it because some of these names are people who um uh, whether or not liz trust was a, a roaring success did work very hard for her and have actually I think arguably got a place in, um, in for instance, the, the House of Lords. So Ruth Porter, who um, who worked for her, um, to my mind, she's somebody who's contributed a huge amount to the, the Westminster ecosystem over many years, working for think tanks, working for ministers, often in quite difficult jobs. Um, and personally, I think she, you know, deserves a place in the House of Lords far more than somebody some of the people who were on Boris Johnson's honours list, uh, for instance. If we're, if we're going to have a sort of league table of people who do and don't deserve to be in the House of Lords, which, in fairness, I think the, the, the don't might be quite a longer list, um, uh, then, you know, people like Ruth Porter, Mark Littlewood being another one, you know, the, the, these are sort of heavyweight people who've, who've contributed a lot to politics. Um, and then there's the, the suggestion that she might also be wanting to reward, I suspect not with peerages, but with lesser gongs, uh, people who've contributed a lot to her local community um, in Norfolk, which seems also uh, fair enough, actually. Um, my view of the, the honours system is that often people in uh, public service, civil service, get rewarded for literally doing their jobs, which is what a pension should be for, not um, a gong. Um, and so when you've got people who've gone above and beyond within the community, that's that's a much more deserving re- recipient or, of an honour. But overall, the problem with <laughs> giving out a nomination for every four days of, of being in power is that 
it does suggest that there has been a lack of reflection on the former prime minister's part about um about her part in that all falling apart and if you talk to people who are close to Liz Truss they they say very much that she still believes that other people let her down and betrayed her rather than having much time for for thinking about her own her own weaknesses um at that time thank you katie thank you isabel and thanks for listening <laughs>